Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Secret Record, Fargo Season 5. I'm Kaylin. I'm Brent Wingate. And I'm Aaron Amos. Hi, little homos. Welcome to another Secret Records, where we talk about things outside our regular episodes and extra issues. It could be Andor, or Castlevania, or Scott Pilgrim, or really anything falling outside our weekly bread and butter, which in case you forgot, is X-Men and the MCU. It's like an extra, extra issue. Uh, Joining us today for a discussion of Season 5 of Fargo is one of the hosts of Talking Comics, a podcast about the wide world of comic and graphic novel love. He's something of an ad-lib here, and friend of the pod, Aaron Amos. Welcome, Aaron. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. I really meant to put something nice to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Today we're talking about Season 5 of Fargo, Noah Hawley's anthology series inspired by the tropes and characters of the 1996 movie of the same name, and like the movie, barely features the town of Fargo at all. This season focuses on a kidnapping gone wrong, a man with a damaged ear, a wealthy family monarch, a dogged detective, and a whole lot of questions about what legal, what's legal and what's right. Spoilers ahead. You've been warned. Obviously, the whole idea of the show is that it's like the vibe of the movie without having the actual content of the movie. I like to think of it as an homage that Noah Hawley does of the Coen brothers. Yeah. And in some cases, the homage is better. It's like Johnny Cash doing Trent Reznor's Hurt. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, I might like this better. Uh, or Johnny Cash doing Nine Inches Nails, uh, whatever. Hurt. Oh, Literally yeah. hurt. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of quick wit you can expect on Homo Superior. Well, y'all. we'll cut that. <laughs> Aaron, before we get into all the details of Johnny Cash, uh, <laughs> I want to ask, what is your relationship with the FCU? And did you have any expectations going in? Literally, I've only watched the movie, uh, but I probably watched that movie, I would say, probably six or seven times. It's just one of those things that I have a, a group of movies that if they come on and I'm home and I'm just sitting there, I will watch them over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's one of them. Um, so that's really all I had. I had never watched any of the previous seasons. And so when I picked this up, I I didn't know what to expect, but I will say I have comments and thoughts uh, about what I got. I also think of this as being a must-watch Along with the thing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What what else gets into your must watch? Any Bourne movie? Um, there's a any of them? Any of them? Okay. Well, no, even the Jeremy Renner for, one, no, not the Jeremy yeah, Renner. Yeah, okay. I was just gonna I was just gonna cut that out. Yeah. Born, born classic. Uh, yes. that, uh, that's not born. This <laughs> is dead. It's born adjacent. Yes. Yeah. Um, any Lord of the Rings movie? Well, not the Hobbit. Not the Hobbit. Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a movie. Do you know, I feel more exhausted starting a Lord of the Rings movie than if it's already on <laughs> and just coming in. Yeah, it's the beginning of that journey. It's like, oh, I don't oh, want to go on this. Oh, this is, I know. This old wizard, get the fuck out of here, it's old like man. like three hours of packing for a trip. Seriously, yeah. Basically. So, but no, the last thing is, is this little movie, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh. Such a great John le Carre. Yeah. I watch that movie every single time it comes on. It is fantastic. What about you, Kaylin? Do you have any? Uh, I mean, yeah, clearly, uh, Train Spotting is one. If it comes on, it's there. I recently rewatched Hackers. Not a great movie, but a classic movie from the '90s. It has a phenomenal cast and soundtrack. Just really bad dialogue and direction, but a classic nonetheless. Pulp Fiction is another one. Uh, Kill Bill, uh, and almost 
every Wes Anderson movie, but especially Royal Tenenbaums and Grand Budapest Hotel. So you and I listed like three or four, and Kalen listed like eighty. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds about right. All of them. Yeah, all of them. I'm an IMDb. Yeah, I ever heard of Kurosawa? Yeah, all of them are fine for me. And I'm gonna name what? all seven samurai. <laughs> number one, <laughs> number two. All right, sorry, Brent. All right, let's get into the pod. We're gonna do things a little different from usual, where we either kind of broadly talk about themes or go episode by episode. And instead, we're going to kind of focus through main character arcs and then talk about some themes in the end. It's a little old school for our podcast, but let's start with some vintage Homo Superior. Why is this the best and why is this the worst? Kaylin, do you want to start with the best or the worst? Uh, I will start with the best. Um, So season five um, came out like almost three years to the day from season four, and I was surprised there was going to be a season five. As Brent mentioned, it's an anthology series, so you know it's set in the same universe ostensibly, but it is not doesn't it's not a continuation of previous seasons. Season four, as you and I discussed, Brent on our review, um, is not great. Uh, season four was a misfire, and I was worried that Noah Hawley only had a few tricks in his bag. Mm. Um, we said that about Legion, uh, the uh, X-Men series that he did for FX. Season one was really good. Season two and three weren't good. Fargo season five, I am so happy to say, um, is I think one of the tightest seasons of this show ever. And it's a very good noir. And I think it has some very compelling and visceral characters, both antagonists and protagonists. Um, I, I just think... It, it's just good, and it's, the reason it works is because the casting and the dialogue are, are, are fantastic, and I really cared about these characters. So, Aaron, why is this the best? So, I don't have a lot other than the original movie to sort of base this on, but I will say what I was going to say earlier, but I thought I would save it, is that I did feel like I recognized the environment. I recognized it seemed familiar, having only seen the original movie. Um I will say also that I, I, I did like the casting. I, I didn't know what to expect, but I did like the casting. I, I We're going to go into the characters, but I liked the, the, I guess you can call her the antagonist. No, protagonist, rather, I guess. Um, I really liked her Dorothy, arc. you mean? Yes, Dorothy. Yeah, Dorothy's that, the protag. Come on, get that to it's her. Hard to, She's gone through enough. She, she went through a lot. To consider the pot protagonist? It's like, it's like saying Harley Quinn is the protagonist. I don't know, but... Um, yeah, just the the character arc sort of, I will say it felt like it sort of started rough, but it got to where it needed to get to, and I felt entertained and sort of almost exhausted at the end. So I thought that was really, I guess, a good thing about it. So I do understand why you're questioning, you know, is she the protagonist? I don't think you have to be a good person to be the protagonist, <laughs> but I will say the best, the reason why it's the best is because she is, like, normally when you have... Not normally. Often when you writers want to look like they are incorporating women into stories, Mm -hmm. they write a male character and then control F, replace he with she. She, yeah. And it's fucking infuriating. But I do think that this story reminded me a lot of Ripley in the Alien series because I thought, oh, this is actually like a really clever, creative, tough, dangerous, flawed person who still embodied who's vulnerable particular feminine characteristics that 
you know, it's not it's not necessary for any character to possess them, but that they are not bad to have. Um, and I thought like, oh, it's really great to see such a complete character who isn't just like strong equals good. Yeah. So why I the agree. worst? Uh, the worst, uh, very, very minor stuff. We'll get into a little bit more in the character stuff. I think there was a few, um, I would call them subplots, side quests, maybe even uh, to kind of hit home the point on some of the themes, which we'll get into. Uh, Indira, who's uh, another one of, I would say, a secondary main character. She played the the Scandia police officer. Uh, she's a really good actor. Um, I liked her a lot, but the subplot with her husband, I was like, all right, I, I get it. He's a piece of shit. I get it. I don't need to see many more scenes with them. Yeah. I really don't. And it's just like, you know, we could have almost done without it. I can, I know why they did it. But my biggest worst is actually not. No, wait, no. That was your worst. Galen. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you do one worst. All right, fine. You, I'll you, get into but, it when we get into yeah, character stuff. Yeah, all I right. think my worst is probably that Noah Hawley needs to fucking chill. I got it. He's got bells. He's using a drum line for the music. Uh, all of his characters have crazy fucking names that are on the nose. Um, there are so a guy gets his fucking ear blown off all the time. There's so many things that are like in every fucking season. I've seen it. Could we do something a little bit different? I it's a it's a very fine line between a particular style like Wes Anderson and being insufferable like Wes Anderson. Aaron, what's your what's the worst? Why is this the worst? I'm actually going back and forth. I was going to say I think the the worst was that the mustache twirlers were really twirling their mustaches with you know the evil. Mm-hmm. Just it was just really leaning into it. Even from those things that were just you know like the husband. You know, Roy just Tillman, being an yeah. asshole. Yeah. Um, straight up to Roy Tillman, Gator, all just full on assholes. Um, okay, I guess I only get one worse. I was gonna say my runner up. No, but um, I just felt like that was, it was a lot at times because everyone was sort of vying for who's the biggest asshole. Yeah. Like who's it's it wasn't even like shades of asshole at times. It was just we are all assholes and we are all striving for the top, and I feel like that sort of made it difficult to take them all seriously because it sort of gave it a cartoony sort of yeah. vibe to me. Sort of like, all right, well, we just know he's the... It's almost, almost like you say, I don't really care what the motivations behind the Joker might be. He's the Joker. He's going to murder someone, blah, blah, blah. And that kind yeah. of is what I was beginning to get from them. Well, let's jump into this character arc. So um, interrupt me whenever, but let's follow... Now. <laughs> let's let's follow Dorothy Dot Lyons uh character arc. So she is the main protagonist. Uh she gets arrested for accidentally tasing a police officer uh which ends up bringing her to the attention of constitutional sheriff Roy <laughs> Tillman who sends men after uh her to kidnap her. We did not learn the reason why there was a riot at the No. The school uh, and I, I actually love that. I love that it was just this thing that happened people something got really out of hand and i think it is a little bit about the environment when this is set and i think it was probably something about like a heightened political debate or or something yeah. where somebody said something a little bit wrong and and like everyone's getting really really anxious and when you have dot later on talk about what happened to civility what happened to us being nice or like being good people um, 
I think it it serves as like a really nice sort of like uh, entry point into who this character is. I think it speaks to the expectations of the creators that once that was over, we really didn't want to go back to it anymore. It was almost like, well, you know, these things happen in these school environments all the time now. It's no big deal to see there be some sort of bizarre outbreak somewhere. And it just sort of once it was over, I honestly didn't think about it again. I didn't actually care. It was almost like it was just like a, a it was like white noise on screen. It was well, you can say that about every character on Fargo. Almost every character, it's white noise on the screen. Uh, listen, as the only white person on this podcast, I want to <laughs> make sure I represent. Hey, shut up and eat your mayonnaise sandwich. There, uh, we got to make uh, bisquick uh, biscuits. Yeah. Um, so uh, Roy sends uh, Ule Munk and Donald Ireland after. Uh, a dot to try and uh, uh, kidnap her and she uh, claws their faces or burns them um, and is uh, basically effectively able to evade their kidnapping ending up at a gas station where there's a whole shootout she saves the life of uh, the deputy um, what's his name Walt, Walt, Walt? Wit. 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 Yeah. yes deputy Wit Far yep. yes. yeah. um, and then flees uh, so she gets home, uh, immediately tries to home alone security the whole house up, yeah. freaking out Very her Kevin McAllister. Um, I, okay, so Wayne, her husband, who's a little bit feckless <sighs> in all this, if your partner just all of a sudden, uh, well, disappeared and then returned and then started barricading the entire house, uh-huh. what's the appropriate response to have? Oh, I don't know there, oh, Dorothy. I'm not sure, Dorothy. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to go watch She's Blue Bloods. Sh- thank God for the week-long waiting period because oh. she was about to get Oof. an insane rifle. Oh, <laughs> good Lord. Um, so, and of course, this is uh, not enough for, like, getting knocked back once wasn't enough for Roy Tillman. He sends his son Gator and a bunch of their buddies on Halloween night to try and infiltrate the house. Yeah. Uh, Dot is able to successfully repel them once again, but in the process, Wayne gets electrocuted and the house catches fire. Yeah. Were you going to say something? No, I'm oh. saying, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, I will say something about that scene um, as I think about like best and worst again. So one of the things I had a little bit of a problem with this season was some of the needle drops. Uh, I don't think some of the songs work or they were too on the nose. But I think um, the Tiny Tim rendition of uh, I Got You, Babe, is so weird and creepy. And seeing like Gator and his like gang with all those weird masks. Um, that drove I, me insane. Go I, on, though. I think it was it the weirdness like added, added to like the creepiness and like the how unsettled I feel. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. I felt in that scene. I think that worked, but the other needle drops in the season, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, you dumb bitch? The uh, thing, okay, so I actually like the Johnny Cash version of I Got You, Babe, but... uh, (laughs) By Trent Reznor originally. The thing that uh, drove me crazy about this home invasion was that they're all wearing the masks from the characters in uh, Nightmare uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, and I'm like, oh my God, why do they all have to be wearing the same masks? Why Why are they singing This Is Halloween... Fuck you. I don't need this. is too on the nose. It, well, that and one of the songs when they were going there was Smack My Bitch Up by Prodigy. And I was like, 
Okay, not great. <laughs> yeah. I love that song, but not great in this context. I hate every time I hear that song in a movie or a show. I just do. I just I think the only time I have ever enjoyed seeing that play out anywhere is in the Charlie's Angels movie. That's Oh, it's it. very good in that movie. It's very very good. I I mean, I think the song is fantastic, but it yes. didn't it didn't work. Nor did uh YMCA towards the end of the the season. I think oh, that was stupid. Yeah. Uh while well, they're all gunning up. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, Ugh. Uh, yeah. You I feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh so they they survived this capture um but of course because Wayne has been electrocuted, he's now in the hospital um and uh you know the police are coming around to investigate uh Dot and uh, their daughter Scotty end up holding up at um, the mother Lorraine Lyons mm-hmm. house. Oh. Lorraine is the billionaire CEO of, I believe it's Redemption Services, which yeah. is a debt collection ag- agency. And she's the what a of, misnomer, what a fucking misnomer of a name. Oh, of a Redemption company. Services. Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean that feels like a shell corporation of a shell corporation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, out of the uh, the mo- this whole show should be called uh, out of the pot and into the fryer because yeah. literally she has just evaded capture and Lorraine has her committed to a mental hospital, which she of course promptly escapes from. Yeah, um, I felt so bad for her uh, pinning that. Uh, so Dot, you know, is wandering around the hospital. She steals a nurse's outfit uh, after I guess assaulting her. Yeah. Uh, then switches the room signs so that people yeah. believe uh, her husband is someone else. Yeah. The the Roy Tillman gang ends up taking this poor guy with cancer back to their place and beating him and then killing him later. Like, God, that guy has a... I mean, I know he was yelling. Yeah, he was an asshole. He, he was an asshole, but come <laughs> on. I mean, yeah. he has cancer. Like, can you give him yeah. a break? He was struggling. Well, yeah. Would you prefer the cancer have gotten him? So at this point, like, how are you feeling <laughs> about? Oh yeah, oh so I feel great now. Oh Roy Tillman and his gang are heroes. Yeah, it was merciful. Yeah, exactly. How are you guys feeling about uh, Dot's character? You know, by the point that she's like escaping yet again, because she she not only escaped, so she escaped, <laughs> so she's escaped the kidnapper group one, kidnapper group two. She's escaped from Lorraine's hospital incarceration. She also evaded all of the hospital workers, the FBI, and uh, the Wayne boys again. She's a little, at this point, I was getting a little frustrated with the season. This is like, I think, episode five, um, where it has the weird narration of like what a the, tiger the is. tiger, Jason Schwartzman. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, she's a little one punch. She's a little like superhuman at this point. Um, and it wasn't until I think the subsequent episode, which we'll get into, where... I got a sense of her vulnerability again, and it put everything back in context. So at this point, yes, I'm annoyed. But So I actually appreciated that we didn't get a sort of prologue of this is what her skill sets are, this is what she's capable of doing, but rather I had to learn over time, you know, that this is what she could do. This is what, you know, she's smarter than the average bear. She's She's a little bit... You know, she's what are they, five foot two, yeah. but able to do all these things and sort of watch it build. So I appreciated having that slow burn of understanding who she was because at some point I just kept saying, all right. At first I was thinking she's just getting really lucky. She's just getting really lucky in these, 
you know, moments of these things being nearby that you could weaponize, et cetera, et cetera. But then eventually, you know, maybe I'm slow. It just clicked. I'm like, oh, okay, this chick knows what she's doing. Yeah. Okay, what's what's that story? I mean, I think that's part of the that's the conceit of a character is that mm-hmm. people have consistently underestimated mm-hmm. her and she will gouge your eye out with mm-hmm. a fork. Like, do not leave her in a room with stuff mm-hmm. because she is dangerous in any circumstance that she's put in. It's kind of like the that old the I'm the old man who's retired in a movie trope like Liam Neeson mm-hmm. or there was that Bob Odenkirk movie or I can't Nobody. I mean, I, yeah, no, Mr. Nobody uh, or like, I don't know. I put John Wick in that category as well. Like, yeah, you should not be running around. It's with it's, the aggression you are and as dangerous as you are with like the back of a spoon. I mean, it goes to show how good an actor. Uh, what's her name? Juno uh, Temple. Juno Temple is that. This character could have been awful and insufferable and just, you know, uh, so had such plot armor that you didn't care. But like her absolute like decency and vulnerability and toughness always like shone through. And I was like actively rooting for her. I was very much I felt like she was in danger. And uh, I know you didn't see season four, Aaron, but I remember, um, you know, as we were talking about season four, uh, one of the characters from um from that season, uh, oh gosh, what is the name of the the teenage black girl who's the main character um, from season four? I can't remember. Uh, I um, she's so for- forgettable because I never cared about her being in danger. I never felt like she was in danger, whereas I felt Dorothy always was. And I was watching it the first time; I was always on the edge of my seat about like what could happen, even though I knew ultimately she'd be okay. Did any of you guys like from the start of the season kind of feel like you were against? her a little bit like when she tasered the cop the cop i kind of assumed like well i don't know there's some maybe there's some part of it, like some imposition that was being played uh by noah holly in this that like yeah you assume like oh she's gonna be the criminal that she's the one who like will escalate things and be did you the... think she was gonna be like lester nygaard from season one a little bit <laughs> yeah i thought that she might be the the william h macy type character like oh this person's in over their head and therefore they would go to certain lengths to like just, get out of it i just assumed that she was like all right i, I blew up a building somewhere and now I had to change my identity. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking when she was so nervous yeah. about going in. But yeah, I will like say, that she did something yes, wrong. That she did something that she was on the run for. Um, I will say, someone asked me what I thought when I was sort of halfway through watching it. And honest to God, I, it got to a point, I think it was after episode five, where I was just like, I feel like I'm watching Buffy the Maga Slayer. It's really like she's just taking them out. <laughs> I would watch the shit out of that. One after the other. Yeah. And she's like this tiny little thing that it, it may have been that, that surprise that sort of kept me there. I think had I known that or expected that, I wonder if I did have would have been so taken by that had I seen the other seasons. I don't know. I just... I've been told I need to go back and watch the other seasons, so I guess I'll find there, out. I mean, some of them are very good, and one of them is not so good. But um, there is a little bit of that, too, you know, when you were talking about the worst, Aaron, of, like, it feels sort of cartoonish at times, like the bad guys are all, you know, mustache twirling. I mean, at the end of the day, what Noah Hawley has done in the same way that, you know, the Coen's brothers did, Fargo is a parable. And so you have people that are sometimes bigger than life and they seem, you know, more like, it seems more like, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, A melodrama than an actual drama, but the humanity and some of the nuance still shines through, through that kind of bigger than life story that he's telling. 
So I stopped us at this point because it's at this point in the show, we're roughly kind of toward the end of episode six, that we see the amount of abuse that Dot has suffered at the hands of Roy Tillman. We then move in to her kind of on the lam, where she goes to this diner and she orders some silly little pancakes and then she gets up to go to uh, Camp uh, Camp Echo or whatever camp it's called. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Um, to confront Linda Tillman, the first Tillman wife. They have a whole campground set up there. Everyone is called Linda. There's a hilarious exchange where she, she says, I'm looking for Linda. We're all Linda here. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm looking for someone named Linda. Yeah, we're all named Linda here. No, this person was named Linda before they were named Linda. Oh, that Linda. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she has to do this puppet show in order to convince them that Linda should go back and testify. Um, as it turns out, all uh, she convinces her, but all of this is either a dream or a daydream, and um, it's just not true. What did you guys make of this whole sequence? What were your thoughts on seeing it in real time and then kind of thinking about it afterward? That sequence annoyed the hell out of me at first. It really, really did. Um, as it was happening, um, I was feeling her frustration um, that no one was getting the sense of urgency that she was trying to convey to them, especially Linda, you know, as I do air quotes. Yeah. Um, not really getting it. It settled differently. When we got to the point of realizing, oh, okay, did this really happen? I'm mm-hmm. not really sure. Was this sort of a catharsis that she was having while, you know, sitting in a diner somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then I came to see it differently. But it took, I think, for me to really settle into that particular scene, it took me another episode and a half, I think, probably, to sort of get there. Because it really did. At that point, I had assigned that as the filler episode. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't really... I didn't really need it. Um, but and once you get to the end, it makes sense now. I'm like, oh, okay. So now I get it. I understand. I think by the time, uh, similarly to Aaron, you know, as I was watching it, I was like, it, it had this ethereal, otherworldly feeling. And so... Some of that Noah Hawley bullshit. In ho- yeah, <laughs> you're well, like, oh, fuck you, dude. Seriously. Fuck you. You make me watch... I love, I love puppets. And you're going to take me out of the action for some fucking puppet bullshit? Uh in hindsight, though, and it happened, I think, toward at the end of that episode, or like maybe even three quarters of the episode, you realize what this is, and um, I think it's a, I think it's the best episode of the season. Um, it's incredibly chilling uh, by not showing us in reality what happened to Dot or even to Linda, um, you know, before uh, Dot became the second uh, Mrs. Tillman. Um, and using a child's, you know, a child's toy, uh, a, like a very juvenile, like sort of um, medium to do a very dark story. It just it was very unsettling and very creepy and scary and just made me very sick to my stomach. And I say that as all as compliments because I think the show really that episode specifically affected me very emotionally. And towards the end, I thought about this when I, I watched the season twice. The second time I saw it, it reminded me a lot of both of Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ and Spike Lee's 25th Hour, two very good movies um, where, uh, spoilers alert for like movies that are 20 and you know 40 years old or 35 years old, 
where there's an uh, an extended dream sequence mm-hmm. of like for last Temptation of Christ, it's like, what if Jesus wasn't crucified? What if he led you know a more ordinary life? Uh, in the same way, in Twenty Fifth Hour, Ed Norton's character who is going to jail for getting busted for heroin possession and distribution. What if uh, his dad says, I can just drive you out to the middle of nowhere and you just lead a new life. And he imagines this whole life and it cuts to him still being driven to jail by his dad. And so it referencing two movies I really loved. And I don't know if Noah Hawley had that in mind, but he's definitely referenced movies outside of the Coen brothers, you know, over like in his, in these shows, I got to believe that it had some kind of influence. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. So a little pushback maybe on this. I saw an article in Ranker that was talking about the themes of Fargo and how Fargo, unlike, you know, Scandinavian TV shows and film counterparts where a lot of it is like the world is grim. The people are broken. You are grim. Fargo plays in this weird world where like, yeah, the world is dark, but there's also very silly things. And uh, oh. you kind of feel this um, weird juxtaposition because you're like, oh, I'm not in the serious yeah. real world because yeah. there's still jokes and stuff. Yeah. But that's what allows the the darkness to creep up yeah. because you're like, oh, wait, no, I actually am in the dark world. It's just that stupid things happen sometimes. Right. The absurdity of it all. One of the criticisms about the use of puppets here was that it pulls back too much that it makes you kind of feel like, all right, well, the real serious stuff I can hide in some way when the reality is that like, I mean, you're, you're kind of handholding us because you want to have it both ways. You want us to feel positive and also like, "Mm, I'm thinking about this really critically when the rest of it isn't critical enough. I hate to say it this way. I think there are multiple types of violence that plays out in these types of shows. And it's exactly what you're saying. And in, in this sort of world, the violence can be bookended with something, you know, hysterically funny, but it's still god awful violent. I think had we gotten into a space where we were looking at children suffering that way or looking at that type of abuse like the reality of abuse beyond just seeing like photos or the aftermath i think it would have changed the tone maybe taking it deeper it pushes it maybe in too much of the handmaid's tale touch yeah Yeah. i think that was just I, i think using the puppets walked that line to let you know and i think that was i think it was put on the actress then to sort of convey the emotional impact of that period of her life. Um, and I think she did that really well. But I think to actually visualize that using a young girl and using, you know, a young boy, and, and it, I just think it would have pushed us maybe too far into the, the 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 violence that maybe isn't really something that the Coen brothers are accustomed to doing. So Kaylin warned me this episode would be a gut punch when I saw it and I keep, I'm watching it and then I'm like, Oh fuck these, they're bringing out puppets. Oh no. Noah Hawley thinks this is cute. No, this is just awful. And then she comes back from the daydream and I'm like, Oh, oof, that really fucking hurt. Yeah. Um, the thing that got so much worse, so much quicker was the she got hit by a car and then uh, she is found by Roy, who says, I've got you. So 
even before that, and you knew it was coming when she wakes up in the hospital and the nurse who seems oh, very yeah. kind, mm-hmm. she asks about Linda. It's like, well, no, honey, there was nobody else, mm-hmm. or I don't know anything about that, but your husband's here. He's really worried about you. Oh, and he's really easy on the eyes, too. And and Dot just seems like, oh, I'm safe now. I get to see him Wayne, the love of my life. And you knew at that moment. I knew at that moment. I'm like, it ain't Wayne. Mm -hmm. Fucking Roy Tillman found her. And you see him walk in. And it's like, it's even before that, it's dread. Yeah. That dread. And then then you have the scene of, like, I got you. Oh, gut punch. I paused because I knew that was coming. I paused at that point. I was just like... All right, here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of hit play again. Yeah. So she is in pr- now imprisoned by Roy, uh, who keeps calling her Nadine. Um, she fucks with uh, Roy's son Gator a little bit, uh, you know, with uh, talking about how his mother Linda uh, said she loved him and stuff. But we start to get the impression that Linda didn't escape. Uh, but that it was actually killed by Roy as well. I want to push back for a second when you said fucks with Gator. I don't think... I don't think... Oh, sorry. Yeah. What I mean... I, I mean that, like, abstractly, this messes with his mind. Oh. Not that she is trying to got it, got manipulate it. him. Got it. Okay, yeah. I think she truly believed. Yeah. She did. She truly she believed... She was going to take him to his mother. And she truly believed that Gator... And she even says this to Linda in the dream sequence. It's like, you know, like, you can tell that he wants to be a good person and not be Roy, but he's going to turn into Roy because mm-hmm. he has so much he needs to like live up to this monstrous man who's mm-hmm. just the yeah. biggest influence in his life. Yeah. So because it's a prison, she's able to escape and <laughs> she it gets out, tries to hide in the same well uh that uh Roy Tillman uses to dump bodies. Uh and before she's cornered by some of Roy Tillman's men as they're Oh. bearing down on uh, Tillman Ranch along with the FBI. Uh, guess who? Ole Munk shows up to let the tiger free. She shoots Roy in the stomach, and uh, then he kind of you know warms his way off. Um, when she gets home, she has a chat with Munt, Munk. A year later. A, a, year, a year later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> tells him, you know, don't worry, everything's going to be, be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to think about any of the huge number of crimes I committed along the way. That's all going to be fine. Why don't you have some biscuits? Uh, <laughs> Here, help me make some. I mean, it'd be funny if this was a 10-hour commercial for Red Lobster's Cheddar Biscuits. I'd be like, that's amazing. That would biscuits be, are great. Holy <laughs> shit, if a Red Lobster logo came up at the end of this. <laughs> that would have been hysterical. <laughs> I would have been like, okay, props. I got Maybe got to go to Red Lobster yeah. after this. So I, I got to I gotta pause and ask, are we just not going to mention Danish at all? We are. We are. Okay. We will. Yeah. Thank you. I feel bad about Danish. I just <laughs> didn't wanna... Danish Graves, that sounds like a very serious breakfast. Oh. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, poor Danish did try and come and save her. Um so, you know, kind of thinking about the this shootout, how it played out, how kind of quick it was, and then how the rest of the finale turned into, hey, vignettes about life and this long scene about, uh, you know, responsibility and debts and stuff like that. What did you think about this kind of capstone for Nadine or for Dot? I have to say it was probably the, and this is saying a lot, probably the most unrealistic 
thing about all of this. I, I can't see a scenario where that whole family is not suffering from PTSD um, at some point. But in the spirit of this type of show, you know, and I'm going to say based on what I know of the movie and everything, I it it worked. It was sort of just like it was also sort of like a palate cleanser because I needed something to to sort of like purge my demons or something after going through 10 episodes of, you know, all of that. I think um, doing the climax very early on, like the first 15 minutes of the episode where you see Dot shoot Roy, Roy run off and then kill Wit, which is tra- very tragic, and then mm. getting caught, um, you know, and then letting the, less, the last like 30 minutes, give or take, just be this denouement, mm-hmm. uh, this coda. I, I really liked it. I, I wasn't sure at first. And, um, you know, you had the, you know, they go visit the grave to Aaron's point. Like there's a lot of, they face a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, where is this? But maybe it's the Minnesota Knights part of it where like they just de- yeah. bury it deep, deep, deep down, you know, where nobody can find it. And then as soon as she and um, Scout get home and she's like, oh, honey, I got the sour cream and that sharp cheddar you like. And he's like, okay, honey. And I'm like, oh, there's yep. Mook. Yep. Mook yeah. is there because he's the, he's the. He is the, uh, you know, like the last thing that we haven't resolved, yes. you know, and I loved their interaction because he is a hard and serious man who's lived 500 years, which we'll get into, give or take. Um, and he's like, there is a debt that must be paid. And she's like, why? And then she's immediately treats him with something he's never had before. Real kindness. And it just like. When it ended, I was like, huh? And then I thought about it. I was like, I really fucking love that. Yeah. It just, I mean, uh, this is a hard show, a hard season with some dark shit. And at the end of the day, it's one person who has no reason to be nice to this other person showing him true kindness and true warmth. And I was like, it made me feel kind of warm and gooey inside. It does feel like uh, when you've got a friend, invite a friend over for dinner. You're like, this person's fucking weird, right? <laughs> but none of us can really talk about it. So we're all like, uh-huh, that sounds that sounds great. great. Yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, cool. So how many severed head duck heads can you fit in a backpack? I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is wild. Interesting. <laughs> uh, moving on. <laughs> Scotty has to be the most well-adjusted child. She just wants her damn M&Ms. Ever. Oh, my God. And some pancakes. Just, I, at some point, I was waiting for this kid to, like, flip. I really was, like, waiting for whatever was going to be the thing that was going to, like, turn her. Since this is a gay podcast, and Aaron, you are also gay, um, Scotty is definitely queer-coded. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotta be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Um. Uh, well, <laughs> one of the reasons why I think that's so transparent is how the matriarch of the family, Lorraine Lyon, says... Scotty's got a boy's haircut within the first five seconds of like Where's meeting the character. Yeah. Where's uh, my we can put the cross dresser in the middle. I'm like, okay, oh, bitch. Chill. Yeah. Uh, what are, what accent are you doing? <laughs> somebody, somebody said online that it was William F. Buckley that it was modeled after. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, so basically do not fuck with Lorraine. Uh, so, you know, she early in the series goes to bribe dot to like get out of the family and learns that Dot is putting on a fake voice the whole time, which is a great uh, 
kind of code switch that yeah. I loved. Yeah, yeah, it was very good. Uh, Lorraine has this whole D plot about uh, Vivian Duggar, a failing bank manager, uh, whose bank she seeks to acquire, yes. and then proceeds to ruin his life when he does not bow to her whims. Yeah. Uh, obviously, because of pressure, Roy. Yeah. Uh, did you have something that you want to say about that? Uh, keep going because I've got I've got some complex thoughts about Lorraine. So I think Lorraine. After th- that, Lorraine becomes, in my opinion, a little bit instrumental to the plot, but I think still important. So see, she has this kind of heel turn or this turn in the way she views uh, Dorothy because uh, Deputy uh, uh, Indira Olmsted. Uh, brings her this dossier of the abuse that Dada suffered, and she starts to realize how tough and complicated this woman is. Um, but as as far as like what happens with the plot for her, she really kind of stays home and makes phone calls to like the FBI, and apparently has Donald Trump's so on speed dial, on speed dial, and has the Minnesota Attorney General over for dinner in episode one. And then after Roy is imprisoned, she goes to visit him uh, to let him know what his life is going to be like from now on. So um, since this is primarily an X-Men podcast, I mean, this is just Emma Frost. Yeah. Uh Well, Rogue became Emma. I mean, it's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. So um, it is. Here's my complex thoughts about Lorraine, because like Lorraine early on is like I even knew about the scene where like they're posing for the Christmas card and she brings out the assault rifles it's like and somebody goes why it's like well that's a stupid question you know basically of course we're gonna do this um and you're immediately like oh i don't like this person and then you kind of like one jennifer jason lee is a very good actor weird accent and all uh you kind of uh revel in the fact that like oh she's really sticking it to some bad people and when she takes on roy and has that con what one you know showing that uh, motherly affection towards Dot, mm-hmm. and then basically, you know, is being you know serving cunt in the prison mm-hmm. with uh, with Roy Tillman. You're like, oh yes, fuck, fuck yes, bitch. But Lorraine is a villain. I mean, through and through, and she's a villain we can root for, or maybe an antihero, mm-hmm. because what she is, she is a predator. She yeah. is literally a predatory lender or debt collector, yes. ruining people's lives. She had that interviewer asking her about hey, aren't you really, like, ruining people's lives? She's, like, trying to put the most positive spin on, like, yeah, we're just making sure that people Uh are able to pay back the debt they owe and stand on their own two feet. Yeah. And they're like, you guys made, like, a billion dollars after going after people extremely aggressively to collect those debts. Yeah. Like, you're not... You're not the hero. I mean, I, I believe there's a value of debt in society, but I don't know if you're yeah. great for the way you're approaching it. No, she's she, again, you know, when you compare her to a what I call a mo- like, you know, like a monster where you can see like the visceral uh, after effects of their actions like Roy Tillman, you know exactly like what a horrible human being he is. But on terms of scale, what what Lorraine has done is affected a lot more lives very negatively. So, like that's the thing. And you know, originally when I was going to say what is the what is the worst about this season, and it's not about the season. It was my my emotion towards it because being a gay man, I love seeing a you know just like a bitchy woman, you know, yeah. just like you know serving cunts mm-hmm. as I said before, looking flawless the entire time. I'm like, 
that's not always a good thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, oh, that bitchy woman is abusing her power. Well, no, queen. It's the Miranda Priestly effect. It's the, you know, um, I love Emma Frost, obviously, uh, but there's other, like, examples in, like, soap operas, The Real Housewives, you mm-hmm. name it. And it's like, no, these are not good people. We just love seeing them be, like, really bitchy. It's the difference. Using soap operas, again, as an analogy, it's the difference between a character that is just the psycho bitch that you know is only going to be there for like, I don't know, a year because there's no way to write them out of the corner versus a Susan Lucci who was able to sort of pivot and go up and down here and there and sort of get you emotionally at one point. And I think to that end, for me, I kind of gave Lorraine a side eye the whole first episode. Um, I did not, she did not become interesting to me until she was afraid of that. Yeah. yeah, that turned because it was another emotion because it really was. She really was one note at first. She like, was very much was so. Yeah, just one note. I'm going to be the bitchiest bitch in the room. I'm going to be the bitch. And OK, you serve your purpose. I at that point thought, OK, she's just going to be that character that floats through and, and does the bitchy mother things. And then we're going to move on and she's going to have lines dropped in here and there. I will say towards the end. Probably one of my favorite characters in the in the series. Um, having agreed with everything you said, horrible person. But in terms but of entertaining the, to yeah, watch, entertaining yeah. to watch, and in terms of the impact on the things that were in story, more horrible than her. Yeah, um, I love to see that. It's sort of like let them eat each other while the good people go off and do their thing, or yeah, the gooder people. There's a part of, like, <laughs> you immediately get the sense of who's a bully in this show. Yeah. And when, like, Roy doesn't have the opportunity, I'm using air quotes when I say that, the opportunity the same way that Lorraine does to be a bully on your side, the viewer. Mm-hmm. Like, she, because she joins in with someone that we become, we come to like and... That the, and we think of as like being a victim here. Yeah. We're like, yes, that okay. Lorraine is using her power for good, but it's still a very messy. Like, what do you mean you can call the FBI mm-hmm. and have them sent to a ranch? I don't think you can do that. Can you do that? It's a little bit like uh, some liberal love for someone like Liz Cheney. It's like, yeah, you're right because you're essentially pro democracy and against Donald Trump but you're also a fucking Cheney. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. your dad was a war criminal. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, anyways. Well, so now we need to get to the Danish graves of it all. Oh. Uh, her loyal right-hand man, I I mean, I he didn't do a whole lot, but I kind of felt like his character had a nice warmth. He did I, everything for me, I'm sorry. Oh, I Dave meant, Foley? Sorry, yeah. yeah I meant like as an actual practical yeah. character. He is just going places where he is directed to. Yeah. Uh, it's not like he exerts a lot of agency. But that being said, I think he's got a great presence. I like I, him. Yeah. I kind of felt sad there wasn't something at the end yeah. for Lorraine to actually like mourn him specifically yeah. passing. But maybe that says more about her. I don't know. What did you guys think? Um, I think she he was a tool to her and um once I don't think his, she liked him i think she had emotion for him i th- i she it was a very nuanced expression maybe i think she like again um have knowing people in politics who are like this you know they they're these they're chess masters and the people around them are chess pieces mm-hmm. 
uh, if there's there's no blood relation. Remember when in the first episode when they're posing with the Christmas card and he's sort of standing with the family and she goes, family only. Oh, yeah. And so that right there is like, oh, you're not blood. You are smart. You're resourceful. You're talented. I have use for you. But once the use is gone, I don't really care. Um, and I know people like this. We all do. And, you know, um, I don't think she particularly, I don't think it was, she was like saddened that Danish died, but I don't think she was, yeah. you know, completely heartbroken. You know, it's more like, well, this is an inconvenience now. The person who yeah. knows, you know, my, he's my conciliary, he's my right hand, and now I have to replace him. So it wasn't so much she had love for him, but rather he had value for her. Correct. So, yeah. I will say it's a commodity. The one time I audibly laughed is when she gave him instructions to slap her son across <laughs> the face. I, I just guffawed yeah. in the house. It's. <laughs> Fantastic. Loved it. All right, let's talk about uh, the bull in the room, Sheriff Roy Tillman. This bitch, he is just like the word abuse uh, made manifest into a human being. He's an absolute dick to his son, Gator, who just wants his approval. He sends team after team of people to kidnap uh, uh, his Nadine, only for them to be beaten back every time. She, he's only able to catch her when she's hit by a fucking car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, his men kidnapped and tortured the wrong man, whom he then kills. Uh, when he finally does get to Dot, he almost uh, has to kill Whip, uh, Deputy Whitfar in the hospital because his abuses of power and of other people are so flagrant that you literally can't hide it. Yeah. Uh, he hops on the campaign stage with three other Roy Tillmans, has a meltdown, and then punches a female reporter as he's trying to flee. Uh, once the Leon, Lion family attorney, Danish Graves, attempts to save his political career and get uh, Dot back in a fairly reasonable exchange, Roy shoots him and then kicks off an insane MAGA campaign yeah. uh, to fight off the FBI in their last stand at Tillman Ranch. And just before the shooting starts, he slashes his father-in-law Odin. Odin, yeah. Uh, his throat. He gets shot by Dot, flees like a coward to the tunnels, kills Deputy Farr, and then is apprehended by the feds. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> was... John Hamm is a great actor, but seriously, boo this fucking character. I was begging Danish not to go. My, I was bargaining with God. I'm like, please. <laughs> you, knew, please. you knew it was going to happen. I did, but I was still like, please don't be dumb enough to go there by yourself in your Porsche. Please. And when he showed up, I was like, well, I guess we know which episode he dies. Yeah. Roy Tillman is a contrast from the otherworldly type um, villainous figures in Fargo. Like, think uh, Lord Malvo, VM Varga, to name two, um, where they have a cunning and a, you know, guile to the way that they approach their victims. Roy Tolman is a brute. He is all he thinks about is um, is brute force and strength uh, versus weakness. Um, I think um, I think it was Dot that said this. Uh, you know, did she say it to Linda or his like new wife, whose name is escaping me? Where like um, he he hits you when he feels weak, and he feels weak a lot. Yeah, and uh, he takes it out on. You know, Linda, he took it out on Dot. He took it, you know, definitely has taken it out on his third wife. 
uh, and he takes it out on Gator uh, when you find out the backstory of like, you know, your name was supposed to be Roy, but he took one look at you and he saw this weak little thing. He's like, no, you, mm-hmm. like, you're my blood, but you're not really my heir. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's an interesting contrast to show that this is, he's emblematic of white mediocrity, uh, which he's not clever. All of his solutions to problems are the literally you could draw a hammer. You could draw a line on a piece of paper to have them like uh, his guy got killed by monk, a monk, uh, and they have to find a way to hide the body. So he just finds some guy he had, you know, problems with in the past, shoots him and then blames the mm-hmm. murder on him. Like you've just created a bunch of witnesses. Mm-hmm. There's tons of evidence that's a mess. You are just fumbling through and yeah. just believing that because you're a constitutional sheriff yeah. and the law only applies when you say it applies, that there are no consequences for what you do. Right. And you don't need to be clever. You can just ham. You can just punch your way through any problem. Yeah. No. He sees. Uh. He sees all the world's problem as a nail. Yeah. And he's the and hammer. I want a hammer. Well, I think you made the point perfectly, though. He he never needed to be clever. Who who did he need to be more clever than? I mean, where he was. Oh, there was that whole exchange with the FBI and their director where they're like, "Look, he's a problem, but like, come on, we don't want to." We don't want to create bigger issues than we need. Just if he does anything crazier, you know, we'll bring more attention to it. But for now, leave this case alone. He, the fact that like he unraveled because he needed to get Nadine, and he used that in quotes, get Dot back. Uh, Odin even called him out. It's like we're in this because you couldn't yeah. keep this. You couldn't like handle this. You couldn't. And also, Odin. What a piece of shit. Oh, uh, allowing his daughter to marry this man, knowing he's abusive and killed his first wife. And, you know, even making like, I wouldn't call them jokes, off the cuff remarks about that. And I'm like, this is your flesh and blood. Like, Odin's a monster unto himself as well, but and just allied with himself because he's a, you know, fucking QAnon, piece of shit, MAGA, whatever. Well, I think that relationship. The point you're making about him literally sacrificing his daughter was, I think it was designed to demonstrate his level of commitment to his ideology. Yeah. To this ideology. It, it was not just something point. that was, that he was behind as long as he didn't have to hurt or suffer, as long as it didn't cost him anything. He just, it, he was just that dedicated to this cause, even at the expense of his flesh and blood, which is the scariest. Of all kinds of psychos. There is something interesting that exists as him for, I mean, there's a lot, but there's something I think that's interesting about the way that we view power in the world and who really controls the strings and who has influence. And I thought the exchange that was really perfect for this was that Danish Graves looked through a a book of debtors, of people that were in debt to Mm -hmm. uh, redemption services and found three people got their names changed to Roy Tillman, got yeah. them on stage, and then had them all pretend to be Roy Tillman. Really funny political theater. Can't think about it too hard because what if one reporter asks, why the fuck are you called Roy Tillman? Why are you called Roy Tillman? And they all say, oh, we're all in debt to redemptive, redemption services. Yeah. The game is pretty much up. But if you ignore that, really a funny political move. Like 40 years ago, I imagine you could get away with that and it wouldn't be like the scandal of the year. Um, <clears throat> it did what it needed to do yeah. in that moment. But f- for 
for Roy, who's not used to being challenged either politically or in person, it just causes him to collapse immediately because and then he as a result is like, you're so fucking clever, Danish and shoots him. The point I'm making is. Some people have circuitous Iago type. I'm going to machinate and like I got I'm pulling all the strings of power and Roy's approach is no power is power. Yeah. yeah. You so let's see how smart you are to my bullet. C- Cersei versus uh, um, Littlefinger yeah. from uh, season two of Game of Thrones. Um, it is it's not only that there's the three, you know, in- impersonators that Danish put up. He also definitely juiced the moderator. Because the question mm-hmm. she was asking, yeah. it's like, why do we need this? So the three impersonators were there to like completely throw him off whack. Yeah. And then it was a woman, a woman moderator, asking him these questions, pointed questions, questioning his authority, knowing how he feels about it. That was the one-two punch. Yeah. Quite literally for her because he punched her. I mean, that, w- that conference, though, would be on late-night shows nationwide everywhere for yes. sure oh I mean, yeah. That, yeah that would yeah. be like the talk of twitter i yes. mean it's for like, a, at least a news cycle i mean think about like uh sheriff joe uh RPO from you know maricopa county in arizona like he became famous for being such a goddamn piece i mean maricopa county is a lot bigger than whatever podunk uh place in north dakota that is but it, he's, it, in, he's in minnesota uh, yeah he is in north dakota he's yeah, in north yeah. he's on the north dakota side uh but um you know like where you see this kind of stuff and it could become really viral especially mm-hmm. in the age of donald trump yeah. which yeah. is because this is set in 2019 all right let's talk about indira olmstead she she's in debt because of the frivolous financial choices of her husband uh but she's a hard-working deputy for the scandia police department husband is just like incapable he's just and I, he's not he can't feed a kid uh for like a day he cheats on her he's not good at golf seriously girl like this is like 800 red flags mm. um mm. but she is kind of like the francis mcdormand i see there's something up here i need to keep investigating keep digging and i'm and then she you know kind of gets a job with lorraine and helps kind of assist a little bit in the same pathway to helping free dot and keep her safe yeah what did you think from this character is there anything you loved anything you wish you got more of okay aaron's got oh some, my god aaron's got some opinions aaron's aaron's got his glasses off oh on the forehead just ready to like i both loved her and was the most annoyed by her through the entirety of the series all the reasons you just said. Like, girl, get one gay best friend. Yes. <laughs> to have the the smarts and the, the wit and the, you know, the, the quick thinking to to be able to trace these things down and be able to do what she was doing um, and, and stand up to Lorraine, you know, and, and sort of shut her down. Um, but not see there's something wrong with having like a 150-foot golf uh, range in your garage and drum sets and a husband who literally does nothing. It just every time that that scene played out, it it's almost like it. Every other scene that she was in, I felt like her capital was raising, and then the minute he came into the picture, standing next to her, it was like it diminished her again and again, and it just irritated me for that character. I appreciate what they tried to do to show 
um, that, you know, even a smart, tough, mm-hmm. resourceful woman or person can be blinded by the mm-hmm. person that they, you know, at one point really love very much, may still very much love. It's like, you know, it's like uh, Lisa Kudrow's character in um, Bojack Horseman. She goes, you know, it's, well, when you're wearing rose-tinted glasses, red flags just look like flags. Mm-hmm. And so she probably had that a little bit. The problem I had, and I mentioned this on The Worst, is you immediately get like, oh, this guy's a skis fucking bucket. Like, there is not even like a sense of like, oh, this guy could maybe a little bit of a, you know, he's not a lot. Like, he's like uh, creating a lot of debt for him and Indira. But, you know, he's a decent guy. And then you see like, oh, this is actually a bad person. Yeah. They immediately, like, there was no, there was no reveal here. No. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, this is bad. It's one dimensional. And yeah. to your point, Aaron, it's like, why can't, I see it. Why can't you see yeah. it? You know, and it's like you either give us more or give us less. But the amount they gave us was annoying. They never showed us what he used to get her to believe that he was worth all that effort. I never saw anything from him. He's kind of hot. That was all right. Well, he got his <laughs> ass eaten in season one of White Lotus. So. That's him. Oh, oh, and so he uh, quit his job at the White Lotus and then moved. Yeah, to uh, moved to Minneapolis. Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the suburb of Minneapolis. Queuing up HBO Max later. Yeah. Um, but they never gave me anything to justify the two of them being together. Yeah. I mean, other than he's good looking, but I mean. Yeah. Well, and apparently he likes having his ass eaten. So. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I did like the. There was one uh, character beat though when uh, Dot is in the kitchen, her in, in Dara's kitchen, yeah. and is like begging her, "Can you please look after Scout while I go do this thing before she goes to go look for Linda?" And he comes in and he goes, "Babe, there's a woman in our kitchen." And he, you know, Indira immediately goes into like a lie to protect both Dor- uh, Dot and Scout, and. He looks at her like skeevily, like he looks at Dot, like, and then like Indira kind of catches him. She's like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like, like this is my friend. I'm yeah. trying to help her. Yeah. yeah, you know, and like stop, like you know, objectifying her. You know, I think that was like a good, uh, good uh, bit of acting from the actor who played Indira. Um, all right, so let's move on to some themes. Um. Uh, Nothing about Old Monk? Of course, we're going to talk about Old Monk. How dare you? Of course, because we're talking about debt, baby. Debt. Debt, debt, debt. All right, this mo- this show is all about debt. Debt uh, becomes her. We've talked about how Dane, uh, uh, Lorraine uh, Lyon is a, a debtor. She's trying to become a lender as well to make, which is pointed out, Hey, that's not really legal. And she's like, we'll see how legal that is. Yeah. Once the. Oh, my friend, SEC the attorney trust- general yeah. says. Yeah. Um, uh, Kaylin, you know, you pointed out uh, that Roy Tillman, you know, his view of ownership includes women. It's like a biblical form of debt. We've got old Munk, who is the sin eater. He's he says he's 500 years old. I don't know. I might believe him. <laughs> Uh, and he boy, that girl has some crazy stories. Mm-hmm. She's like, we died in a rowboat on the way here. <laughs> you rowed yeah. from the Atlantic? <laughs> what do you mean? I came from the age of the carrier <laughs> pigeon? What are what you talking about? Um, but he is in his older life uh, in Wales. He uh, was a sin eater where basically someone who had died uh, had all their sins 
and he was paid to eat food that rep- was representative of the sins in taking them on that person could go to heaven but he would be doomed forever to walk this mortal plane uh damned um what did you guys think about the themes of debt what did you think about Mook and his view about the world and how he had the debt he needed to settle with um uh dot I dot's th- name sounds kind of like debt huh is that a thing <laughs> oh, is that something debt lion <laughs> yes. there you go gotcha. uh i really really thought the theme was well explored and i'm glad it was existed because you know one of the things that Many of us uh, who are, you know, I would call us either young X, uh, older millennials, and then Gen Z, one of the things we have to deal with is student debt. Uh, and it's crippling for a lot of people, so much so that it's affected people being able, not being able to do things that our parents and our grandparents were able to do, like buy a house. Um, so I like that, you know, Noah Hawley was, esca- uh, was uh, uh, exploring this very American thing. It's, you know, debt is across the world, but debt feels very, very American, especially uh, in this in this sort of like time period. And it, you know, this being set five years ago now in 2019, I think the elements of like Roy Tillman saying, "You may you like you are my property oh, yes. as a woman," you know, you are indebted to me. I am the the head of the household, and you are not going to leave until you have paid off this debt, which might be actually death. Or just continuing to live with him and, you know, facing his abuse. Uh, you know, Munch, you know, basically being, you know, in the, in the time of, you know, the 1500s in Wales, I mean, you had things like debtor's prison there. And having, taking on the spiritual debt of somebody who has died and has not been able to uh, deal with that, I think is a really interesting and horrifying, you know, existence. You know, somebody who has to walk the earth and can never die because he is consumed so much debt from from you know from the dead uh i think it's really really just it's it's, it's great and then of course the stuff with indira and her husband you know is, is a lot more you know matter of fact but i think it still fits in with the theme i think it was amazing how essentially everyone in this show owed someone something mm-hmm. um and were buried by it and couldn't get out of it. It wasn't even a case where I thought at one point Lorraine was going to tell Indira, come work for me and I'll settle all your debts or something like that. She's like, no, 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 come work for me and I'll allow you to sort of consolidate I'll your debts. consolidate your debts, and, yeah. and we'll put you on a payment plan. The only person, excuse me, the only person who was able to work her way out of a debt was that. Yeah. In the end. Um, and she basically talked her way out of it um, and made sense using Munch's logic, you know, wouldn't it be more gracious uh, to relieve this debt, you know, to instead of settling this debt or whatever the word she used, but... Yeah, but she did it through kindness. It wasn't yeah. just convincing him through yeah. logic. I think it was like no one had treated him like a human being. They had treated him as like an object either to absorb sin or as a tool to you know, as a mercenary like Roy Tillman did to, like, go and kidnap Dot. So I wish the show maybe had a little bit of more of this, but I do think that the the finale, to me, turned me around on a, on a lot of the show. So with the conversation between Dot and Munk, Dot is kind of trying to explain, you know, there's, like, a, a nature of forgiveness, and there's, like, 
civility and civilization itself is built on us putting aside differences and just agreeing to be with each other. Like all of the stuff we saw before of, I feel like the a lot of the show has kind of like pretty simplistic takes on society today. Like MAGA, bad, strong women, good. Even if those are, there's more complicated ways that those are played out, it's pretty one-to-one. This conversation offered like, I think a meaningful look at what actual what an actual remedy is. And that's to like look, you might be experiencing problems and you might have what you see are irreconcilable issues, but the literal only thing to do is actually to be around each other. Like the distance created by the internet and by a, the ability to have like your own little bubble makes it harder for you to actually be a neighbor to someone Mm -hmm. and see them eye to eye in some way, see their humanity in some way that means that you're able to like work through whatever political views you have. And that doesn't mean you have to agree or like change your complete perspective on everything, but that there are going to be views that you have that are wrong and you can learn to accept them. I mean, that's kind of how I view the whole sin eating thing is that it's like it's not just about, you know, existential theological redemption. What she is offering to him is an ability to change his own mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That like this is a freedom you can have for yourself as long as you're willing to come to the table and just be with other people. Yeah. I do think that was aided by the fact that that convenience store scene bought her some respect in his eyes. Um, I think... She's a tiger. Yeah, she's a tiger. I think even beyond that... A man that, must deal with yeah. a tiger. Yeah. yeah, I think even that beyond that... another man. The fact that, yeah... A man needs taquitos <laughs> from the gas station. It's, it's the cadence of his speech did make me, did make me <laughs> chuckle quite this a bit. This is how people and whales speak to each other. It was <laughs> very strange. Um, I think... Had she just been the the sniveling housewife that he was able to just sort of yank up, you know, and then somehow she'd escape, I don't know, whatever, the FBI got, I don't think he would have, she would have been able to to talk her way out of it. I think her escaping him and then him, her, him recognizing that she escaped this other asshole that he was, he had some issues with, um, really put a sense of respect for her in his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what led to him sort of evening the odds for her, you know, allowing her to to escape and sort of sort of say, okay, I'm going to get these things out of your way so that you know you can, you can be on even keel now and and do what you got to do, and then we'll come back later and settle this debt because I don't want to do it, you know, when you're you got a lot on your plate right now. Let 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 me just let you work through that first. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. I think it was that respect, that credibility that was purchased by him witnessing all the things that she'd done that gave him the ability to sit and listen to her and sort of hear what she was saying. You know, it was like he she had earned a few minutes of his attention. Um, and I think that came through literally just from his facial expressions, which is what I think was so interesting about that character, what he was able to 
to do with a facial expression and words that I literally couldn't understand half the time, so I had to turn on the closed captioning on my television. <laughs> but I thought he was a just that must have been probably one of the most difficult roles of the of the series. Um, and I thought he did it really well. He definitely had previously shown like that he has respect for mother figures. Yeah. In particular with Irma, yeah. this elderly woman whose house he just like starts living in. Like what a weird folk tale like thing to have happened. Like this man just started living in my house and I guess <laughs> I, I, I live here now. What do you oh. want? Pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Wait, he stood up out of that tub naked. I'm like, I don't want to see this sex scene. I don't want to see it. What's happening right now? Yeah, uh, I, I originally thought that that was his mother, and yeah. then you realize, oh no, no, no of course, no, not. ran someone else's mother. Yeah, yeah, just random. Yeah. Um. All right, let's move on. Um. Do you? All right, this might be a little bit far for the uh, for the movie the show to go. Uh, do you think there are any elements of this story that are trans allegory? To me, the biggest and most striking one was uh, Dot being formerly named Nadine and how it kind of felt wrong. It felt wrong for a lot of reasons, but for um, for Roy to keep trying to call her Nadine when everyone else that we kind of agree with now calls her Dot. He's definitely dead naming her. Yeah. The other, the other big example would be all of the stuff with Scotty from yeah. the name to... But it might, that might just be a lighter touch from the show. What do you guys think? Is there anything there? Uh, I I do. I, I definitely do. Um, it wasn't until um, you know you mentioned it that uh, the fact that she was Nadine, she's now Dot. You know, Roy tries to use her old name, her dead name, to to try to remind her who she was, and she's like, "That's not me anymore. I left. I found a better life without you." Um, I definitely think that, and the stuff with Scout, yeah. I mean, I asked, you know, Scout is definitely queer-coded. I think Scout may uh-huh. either, you know, identify as lesbian, could identify as non-binary. Lorraine is queer-coded as a Disney villain. Does that <laughs> she count? is a Cruella de Vil, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, I think I think there's something there. I don't know if Noah Hawley intended it, but I like it. I like it. It's this an interesting doesn't, observation. This doesn't, for example, feel like Luca to me. The movie, the anime, yeah, 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 where yeah. I'm like, this is a queer movie, and they're like, no, 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 this isn't a queer movie. It's like, no, you guys, you guys don't know what you made. It's you, a queer movie. It's a fucking queer movie. <laughs> this is more like there are a couple of little things there that might. It feel. reminds me a little bit of uh, you saw Across the Spider Verse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, Gwen Stacy is clearly it's a trans allegory. She is very trans coded. Just first the motifs of the colors, you yeah. know, in her universe. Uh, it's the trans flag. Um, the way that you know she like talks about you know this is not who she is anymore. You know, having to come out to her father. Yeah. That very much uh, is like was intended by the creators. I think this is a little bit like that. Like I don't know if Noah Hawley intended it, but I if he did, it's a nice add on. The only thing I think of is all the Lindas when you were talking about all the Lindas. Before. Yeah, all the Lindas. That was all I could think of. Um. Was there anything about that other than they were all called Linda? They were all called Linda. No, <laughs> they were escaping their their past. It's sort of giving up those. You names. heard a friend of Dorothy. You know what Linda is, yeah. though, right? Uh, no, I need, I'm looking for the Lin. I'm fr- I'm actually a friend of Dorothy. Her name is Dorothy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually gonna find. Oh, no, Dorothy. The, she's oh, right oh, yeah, yeah, the original Dorothy. Yeah, she's right there. Um. All right. Before we close out, are there any other major themes you wanted to talk about? Politics, the nature of reality. 
what is this like in the Trump era? Um, anything else you guys had as final thoughts? I, um, I'll, I'll give Aaron the final thought, but I, uh, brought up in previous seasons, uh, reviews of previous seasons about how the nature of Trumpism in America had colored a lot of like what the last, you know, first four seasons had done specifically seasons one through three. But ironically, it's only in this season that said in 2019, it's while Donald Trump was president. And it's like his shadow is all over it. Like the way, you know, Roy Tillman being a, the constitutional sheriff, you know, you know, he is, he is, found uh, a kindred spirit of a man in the White House. There's a line where they said something like, uh, we don't, those facts aren't our facts. And you're like, what do you mean those facts aren't our facts? That's yeah. not how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like calling all patriots when he knew he was, when he knew yeah. he was cornered by the FBI and the police. Um, you know, the fact that his current wife is basically saying, I can't believe those jackals are going after that kind man, like when they're talking about impeachment, because yeah. that's, that was right around when he was, you know, he first got impeached uh, late 2019. So, uh, it's very, very, very heavy-handed in this season, but I'm also okay with that. Do you have anything? Any other thoughts? Yes, there are parts of the country I will never go. That was my takeaway. From this. <laughs> <laughs> I just won't. Um, um, I don't think it was even meant to be coded or or hidden. I think Donald Trump has three wives. One's passed away. This guy has three wives. One's passed away. Oh yeah, you know, one's you know what I mean. It's just the the he's got a wife who's there, but barely wants to look at him. Donald Trump has a wife who's there, barely wants. You know, I think it, yeah. I don't think it was. I think it was very clearly meant to hit a chord with with the viewers. Um, you know, I, personally, it it was triggering at one point, and just enough to remind me that again. There are places that I will not go, period. Just the reality. Yeah. I think thinking about politics, thinking about the idea of like we used to be civilized, the one thing that's really, really hard to accept is this idea that white pe- some white people have, that they are the peak of civilization. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the prior seasons of Fargo... This is the murderingest area <laughs> of the country. Like 20 people died over the course of a day in this fucking town. What do you mean this is like like and then like t- 2 years ago it was like, "Oh yeah, that was the that was the Sioux Falls massacre." Yep. Like what are you talking about? This place is so murderous. Yeah. Where we where when we used to have a civilization, people were still kidnapping each other and having the most harebrained schemes to get suitcases full of money in Fargo. Why do you guys live here? This is shit. It's a fucking tundra. Don't live there. That, yeah, don't, don't, don't live, live there. here. That it's the ultimate anti-PR campaign. Yeah. It's not it's not Red Lobster. <laughs> I used to think this is a this is off target, but off topic. But I used to think the same thing about uh Jessica Fletcher and murder she wrote. Why invite her anywhere? Because someone's going to get murdered wherever she Didn't goes. Didn't they do some calculation that the murder rate had to be the same as like 
Guadalajara or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> small town. yeah. Over the like, per capita, of, like, like how many people a live murder in this town? a week? Okay, murder a week. You know, uh, twenty-two episodes a season, uh, five seasons. That'd be great to see, like a, a a police crime drama set in New York or something, where they're like, we had to bring in a consult. <laughs> we had to deal with someone who's like dead with so much murder. Now oh. I really want the uh, the detective Avengers. It's her. It's uh, uh, Hercule Poirot, whatever. Hercule Poirot. Yeah. Poirot. Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Columbo. Uh, Batman. Uh, who else? But at least they all had reasons to be at the crime. I don't understand Nancy why she Drew. was never. Nancy Drew. <laughs> the Hardy Boys. Why was she never suspect number one? I'm like, it seems like wherever you go, someone's murdered. I'm, yeah. I'm looking at you first. That yeah. would have been a great series finale. Yes. It's all like, of her neighbors are dead. <laughs> it's, like some yeah. sort of, it's like a Dexter thing. Like All these murders were committed by her throughout it, the entire 13 seasons. It's just the ending of Usual Suspects, but it's her. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. All right. Well, that was definitely a digression. Okay. Uh, what about you? Any final thoughts for you? I already gave my final thoughts. Give another final thought. <laughs> um, I do think that it's... When Trump got elected, I was worried that the villains that we see in television would start to flatten and become Trump-like. And I think that that is true for a lot of characters. I find that it's a boring character. A guy who is just a bully sucks. They are not usually interesting. I think that the way that Roy Tillman was set up in this is he is definitely not the most interesting character, but he exists as this interesting almost like mythological figure like everyone he exists in contrast to everyone else yeah rather than like being something subtle and creative and interesting and so i think that that was a nice way of balancing the fact that you've got to have someone who's trumpian with the fact that that kind of character fundamentally makes for worse stories yeah yeah all right so that's my last thought uh also the needle drop of toxic was terrible Oh my completely god! Forgot about that. I completely the, forgot the, about that. The minor key slowed down. Toxic. Do you think? Do you think if they took out the the voice, would that have worked for you? Like if they just did the instrumentals, would you have been like, "Oh, this is kind of like cheeky." Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe, or not even using the music. I don't know. I just like. I think that scene was powerful because you're just on his face and you know what he's thinking and doing. It's after the debate, and he has to go beat on somebody quote-unquote weaker that's dorothy on that long ass walk i think it was powerful except for the fact that we had toxic being played like don't do that that's that's to me is a noah hollyism to a t yeah well at least they didn't play smack my bitch up on that during that uh i i I, not far off not far off all right that's our episode all right uh, thank you so much uh, to Aaron uh, Amos for joining us. Aaron, thank uh, you for having do you want to give out some plugs? Pardon? Yeah, you plug oh, yourself. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wait, where'd you? No, okay. Um, well, no. I uh, thanks for having me, and uh, definitely take a look, uh, take a listen to our podcast. We drop an episode every Wednesday, Talking Comics Podcast. You could uh, check me out on Instagram, uh, Talking Comics Podcast again on Instagram. Um, and yeah, we just talk about a whole bunch of nerdy stuff every week. It's so a great podcast. Uh, myself and Ryan from this podcast mm-hmm. have been guests a couple of times. They're yes. a lot of fun. Uh, they're nerds, and we, we love them. a lot. We talk a lot. It <laughs> really, I mean, you you guys did not, the the cover is what's inside the book. Yeah. Uh, they talk a lot. About <laughs> comics, and we love it. We're perfect for a long commute. And uh, yeah. obviously you're listening to this podcast, so you know where to find Home Superior. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. 
Uh, we're on Twitter, uh, Homo Superior X, and Instagram at Homo Superior Podcast. You can check out our regular episodes. They come out every Friday. And when we have bonus episodes, they usually come out on Monday. Who knows when this one's coming out? <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.